It's good to be with you this morning. Real privilege. Privilege to have been here last night, Nick and Teresa. What a wonderful night we enjoyed. What a great, great celebration. Just the way it should be. I didn't see the dancing, but my, my, I think it was my daughter said they dance a little more crazy than we do. <laughs> we appreciate Clear Note. We pray for you on Sunday mornings in our, as we pray as a church, and uh, it's with love and gratitude. Uh, so many ways that we've been blessed by Clear Note, and the, I, I wish all of you had the chance to be up with us and to see the character up there. There are a few of us who get to go back and forth from time to time, but it's relative minority. And we're an awful lot alike in many ways, except dancing. <laughs> and number of nose rings. But otherwise, you know. <laughs> we have profited so richly from this relationship, and we love you. It's a joy to be with you. I'd like you to turn with me in the Bible to Mark the 12th chapter. Beginning at verse 13 and, and going on through verse 17. This is the, this is the we believe, the, the Monday of Passion Week. The very day on which Jesus has cleansed the temple at the beginning of it. Remember, he comes in on Sunday in the triumphal entry, takes a look around at the temple, and then leaves, departs back for Bethany. And the next day he comes in and he cleanses the temple. And then he teaches in the temple and he's challenged in the temple. And this is a series of challenges. Now, we're not going to read them all, but this is the, the initial challenge of three challenges that Jesus faces on Monday of Passion Week. And it's a challenge that comes to him from a, a rather disparate, an unequally yoked pair of, of forces. Although in the end, I think we find that they are perfect bedmates. I mean, these two forces just absolutely correspond with each other, the yin and the yang the head and the tail of the coin. I mean, they, they really are. But initially, it seems like they, they shouldn't be allies in the way they are. So let's read this and then look at it a little more closely, especially bearing in mind, <coughs> excuse me, the reaction to Jesus' comment. The, the test is found in verse 13. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They're seeking to trap him in something he will say, all right? Uh, they want him to say something. That's the goal. They came to, and said to him, Teacher, we know that you're truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but you teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were 
amazed at him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you'll speak to us through your word this morning and that its power will be as amazing to us and as enlightening to us as it was on this day. Speak to us immediately, Father, through your, through your spirit, your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We have, we have seen and heard this, this passage taught before probably many times, heard explanations of it, maybe even have come to use it as a sort of, as a sort of template for understanding who the Christian is and what his responsibilities are in the midst of the world. We are to render to Caesar those things that are Caesar's. We are to render to God those things that are God's. It's a simple um, sort of parsing, dividing of life. There's Caesar's realm, there's God's realm. We have to live at points in Caesar's realm, at other points in God's realm. It's the way it's often taught. And yet I I would say to you, I would suggest to you that as, as we look at this passage, we're simply absolutely ignoring the context, ignoring what Jesus says, ignoring what the implications are of the response of the people to what he said, when we take this sort of simple cut and dried, it says this and this, and we have to live this way and this way, and we sort of parse our lives between the two, we divide our allegiances and our loyalties between the two this way. Because what we do know at the end of this, of this, of this question to Christ, this test of Jesus, that he responds to in this way is that the people are amazed. I tell you, there's, there's no more important, uh, there's more important things that are said here. There's no more important for framing this than to look at the end of 17. Jesus said to them, antecedent of them, who does the pronoun refer to? To the Herodians and the Pharisees, all right? Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, and they... Same pronoun, all right? Uh, slight difference, but it's the same, same pronoun. It's referring to the same people. It's got the same antecedent. They, in other words, the Herodians and the Pharisees, were amazed at him. Were amazed. They heard this answer, and they went, whoa. Now, if you don't hear something that makes you step back and go, whoa, when you listen to Christ here, if you hear preaching on this or explanations of this on the radio or in a book that don't make you go, whoa, then I suggest to you that you're not coming close to what Jesus said. That only when you go, whoa, that is amazing, do you really begin to comprehend what Jesus is saying here about our lives and his kingdom. Now this is, I said, a, a, a pair of, of forces that come against Jesus and they, they don't seem to be logical allies. The Herodians are followers of Herod and Herod is an Idumean, remember? He's a pretender to the throne of David. He doesn't really sit on it with any, any right of his own. He's, he's been put there by Rome. He has no, really, a, he's a follower of his father, Edom, Esau. He's an Esauite. That's what Idumean means. He comes from that region down by Petra. And, uh, and he's outside of Israel. But he's sort of a bastard king. He's a pretender. He usurps the king of the throne of David. And, and he's been allowed to reign there by people like these Pharisees, who are ostensibly, at least initially, you think, his opponents. 
Because the Pharisees are the, the, really, the really loyal religious people of the day. There are three parties of the day that are, are big. There's the Herodians, there's the Pharisees, and there's the Sadducees. And the Sadducees come after Jesus in the next test. They come to him immediately following this with a test of their own. And that test is there's a man, and they're deniers of the resurrection. Remember that, that the Pharisees, the Sadducees say there's no resurrection. They come and they tell the story about a, a woman who was married to seven brothers, each of whom died, the next one married her. And they go, who will be her husband in the resurrection? Whose wife will she belong to? Who will she be in the resurrection? It's, it's poking fun at Jesus. It's mocking him. It's mocking his claims, right? What are they mocking when they say that to him? Well, they're mocking the resurrection. That's very clear. They're saying, there's no resurrection. But why does that hit Jesus? Well, the reason it hits Jesus is Jesus has been saying, I am the resurrection and the life. You understand? And so every time that these things come against Jesus, it's an implicit attack on him. All right? It's not a, a simple question where they're trying to force him down this lane or this lane. It's, it's an implicit attack where whatever they catch him saying, he's going, going to end up, they hope, denying something that he's already said about himself. That's the essence of these tests. So we have the, the conservative Pharisees and the absolute sort of calloused men of the world the pragmatists, the utilitarians, the Herodians, who pay lip service to Jewish antiquity and religion. I mean, they, they do what it, little is necessary, but they're callous to it. The father of this, Herod, of this Herod may have actually installed the temple and built the temple, but he's doing, he also has built in every other city that he reigns over a temple for the God of that city. He's no worshiper of God. And his men here are no worshipers of God. But they are allies with the Pharisees. And you would think this wouldn't work, but of course it always does. Because what has happened is there's been an unholy, an unholy alliance between the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees are the religious conservatives of the day. But they do not like Christ. They like the forms of religion. They like the liturgy of the church. They're all about high, exalted liturgy, doing it perfectly. They're all about worship being done right. They're all about these kinds of things. They absolutely care about the sacraments. The sacraments are everything to them. But they have no understanding of the Spirit of God. And when Christ comes with power, they're offended that there's a power that goes beyond the sacraments. And I tell you, these groups make natural allies. And so you find in a church that is, that is very, very big on sacraments and perfect worship and the beautiful orchestra up front and every chasuble and stole for the pastor perfectly in its place, and the guy looking like the picture of a pastor and everything done right, what do you find? You find in that kind of church a lot of people who worship money. You understand? They worship money and they worship worship. They don't worship God. And so in downtown Manhattan is a church that's famed. I mean, they put on the Messiah every year. and It's on television. And it's famed. It's it's fabulously wealthy. And I tell you, if you go there, you'll hear the Anglican order of worship just performed perfectly. It's wonderful. What church is it? Do you know? 
Trinity Church, downtown Manhattan. And it owns square blocks in Manhattan, and it's fabulously wealthy. It has an endowment of billions, and their worship and their sacraments are perfect. And it was Jackie Onassis' home church. It's filled with dead people, filled with people who are, who are people of the world. This is the alliance we see coming at Jesus here. The wealthy, the religiously conservative, and they are, they are hand in glove with each other. And so in the tests of Christ in this chapter, we've got to remember that the test is always an attack on the nature of Christ. Now, the general attitude towards the test of Christ that's provided in these verses uh, comprise our focus this morning is, is that two very different groups come and they seek to, to cast Christ on what is called the horns of a dilemma. They seek to force him to choose between the devil and the deep blue sea. You know, hanged if you do, hanged if you don't. It's the kind of thing that they are always trying to do. Give me an answer. Either way, you're hung. You know, what are you going to say, Lord? We've given you a choice, and you're damned either way. It's a choice between the devil and the deep blue sea. It's a Scylla and Charybdis dilemma. Remember Ulysses having to navigate between the two rocks, Scylla and Charybdis? Either one of them would take him down. That's what they're doing to Jesus. They're utterly unimaginative in the tests they bring to him. Despite their apparent wisdom and sophistication, Jesus dispatches these tests with ease, not in the way we sometimes think, in particular on this occasion. challenge here is whether or not to pay Caesar's poll tax. It was not an income tax. It wasn't a sales tax. It was simply a uniform tax established in 6 AD that everyone living in Judea had to pay directly to the imperial Roman treasury. And the challenge is that in paying this tax to Caesar, the Jews had their noses pressed in the fact that the throne of David is empty, that they, though God's chosen people, are vassals of Rome. They have to pay taxes to Rome, and they are God's chosen people. Judas of Galilee, a famous zealot prior to the time of Christ's ministry, rebelled against Rome because of his opposition to this tax. He said of this tax, taxation is no better than downright slavery. And he was followed by Paul Revere. And he accused those who took part in it of high treason against God. So we have here these two groups, Herodians who approve of this tax, Herodians who are friends of Rome. Indeed, remember, Herod grew up in Rome. He was a He's a childhood friend of the Caesars. And the Pharisees, who are far less likely to approve of this tax, and yet they come together and they ask Jesus, after their, of course, slimily insincere words of admiration and appreciation, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and that you defer to no one, for you're not partial to any, but you teach the way of God with truth. Yes, right, right, right. Liars. Liars. So they put their trick question to him after those words. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Assuming that the only possible answer is an up or down yes or no response. And if Jesus responds in the negative, well then, well then he's advocating rebellion against Rome. If he responds positively, well then he's submitting to Rome. Either way, he's in trouble with the Romans, with Pilate, with Herod, if he says no, with the people who support him, if he says yes, 
and they think it's airtight. You know, one way or the other, they're going to catch him on this. But in reality, thinking more deeply, the test here, the real challenge is to the very nature of who Jesus is. The question is, you who have claimed to be the Son of God, you who've said, I and the Father are one, you who say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, you, what are you going to say we should do about this tax? Of course, that's looking at him from the Pharisees' point of view. The Pharisees want him to say, pay the tax. They want an accommodation here because they're accommodationists. I mean, they're quite willing to pay the tax, though they don't like it. And the Herodians are willing to pay their, their duty to God, though they don't like that. They live in two kingdoms, you understand? The Pharisees live in, in one kingdom at one time and another kingdom another time. Sometimes they're in God's kingdom, sometimes they're in the kingdom of the world. And they step back and forth. And sometimes they pay the t- when they're paying the tax, they're doing what they need to do to Caesar, because they do pay the tax. But then in God's kingdom, they render to God. And the Herodians, well, they'd rather give to Caesar, but occasionally they'll render to God as well. And they'll come into the temple and they'll pay their dues to God as well. They're two kingdom people. They live in two kingdoms. They're very much at home in two kingdoms. They lead this sort of, this parsing, dividing life between this kingdom, Caesar, this kingdom, God. And they're perfectly at home. And here's Jesus. And they want him. They seek to have him agree, give his stamp, his imprimatur, his approval to this two-step, this kingdom two-step. Once here, now here, once here, now here. They want it. And what he does, if he does this, what he does is to say, well, no, I'm not the ultimate one to be worshipped. There are other things that need to be. He has said, I and the Father are one. He has said, if you see me, you've seen God. And now they're asking, well, should we pay this duty to Caesar? Do you understand? And the Herodians, what's their percentage? Well, let me tell you. Why did Herod seek to kill Jesus? Because he heard that there was one who was born the king of the Jews. Now, it wasn't this Herod. It was his father, all right? But he has his reasons to hate Jesus. They have their reasons to get Jesus to accommodate to them. Both of them want Jesus to back down on his claims. And if he'll establish the two-kingdom, two-step, once to Herod, once to Caesar, once to God, that's fine. Then he's leading a divided life. But he has said, I am the king, and I am God. And they know it. And they want him to deny himself. So Jesus responds by asking for the common coin of the day, which is a Roman denarius. He wants to look at it, he says. So someone hands him a coin, And then reading from our passage, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Now, I mean, really, if if what we've always heard about this is the truth, that he's, he's actually saying, okay, sometimes you live here and you've got to do with Caesar what Caesar demands. And and sometimes you live with God and you've got to do what God demands when you're over here. Where's the amazement? You know, what's so amazing about it? Why are they flabbergasted? You get the point? 
I mean, if, if I come to you and I say to you, I don't know what to do. I've got a $100 bill in my pocket and I owe $50 to Paul and I owe $50 to John. What am I to do? And you say to me, well, pay $50 to Paul and pay $50 to John. And I go, huh, huh, I can't believe it. You've blown my mind, you know? Well, that's what we're told. They're amazed because he says, pay 50 to Paul and 50 to John. And, and wow, I never got that. It doesn't make any sense at all, does it? Why are they amazed? Now, friends, for, for hundreds, if not thousands of years now, this has been taken as the bottom line of Christ's attitude towards the relationship between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of man. The classic take on this is that we live in two worlds. This is what Jesus is saying in, in this passage. And in the one world, we serve God. In the other world, we render under Caesar what belongs to him. So the Christian is both a citizen of the world, Caesar, and a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, God. And he or she pays dues to each depending on where he or she is and what's required. In the world, we render to Caesar. In our lives with God, we render to God. We pay 50 bucks to Paul and John. Ha! Huh? Now... Nah. A man who is routinely one of the greatest sources of understanding of the Gospels, who I, I, I honor, named Bishop J.C. Ryle, Anglican bishop. And I think it's part of his Anglican temperament that comes through here and causes him to make this mistake on this occasion. Says some things about this passage I want to read to you, which exemplify the modern thought, the typical thought about this passage, about two kingdoms. We live here and we live here, and on this occasion... I think J.C. Ryle is just dead wrong. That's probably the only time I'll ever say that. He makes this statement about these events. He says, Jesus asks them whose portrait and inscription are stamped on that denarius. They are obliged to reply, Caesar's. They were themselves using a Roman coin issued and circulated by the Roman government. By their own confession, they were in some way under the power of the Romans, or this Roman money would not have been current among them. At once our Lord silences them by the memorable words, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. He tells them to pay tribute to the Roman government and temporal things, that is, worldly things. For by using its money, they admitted that they were bound to do so. Yet he tells them to give obedience to God in spiritual things, and then catch this. And not to suppose that duty to an earthly sovereign and a heavenly sovereign are incapable of being reconciled with each other. Do you notice what, uh, what he says? He says, not to suppose, uh, let me read the whole thing and come back. And not to suppose that duty to an earthly sovereign and a heavenly sovereign are incapable of being reconciled with each other. In short, he tells the proud Pharisee not to refuse his dues to Caesar, and the worldly Herodian not to refuse his dues to God. So in essence, according to Ryle, what Jesus does here that confounds the people is to split the difference. He says, Jesus says, some of you are making the mistake of not giving enough to Caesar. For those of you who are in that camp, you need to render to Caesar. And others of you, you Pharisees, or uh, Herodians, because it would be the Pharisees who wouldn't be rendering to Caesar, you Herodians, 
you're not giving enough to God, and you need to give more to God. He's sort of splitting the difference. And he casts it in the terms of duty. He says, we're not to suppose that duty to an earthly sovereign and a heavenly sovereign are incapable of being reconciled with each other. But is this passage about our duty? I say to you, of course we have duties to Caesar. Of course we do. But this isn't a passage about our duty. This is a passage, and I, I, I trust I will be able to make this clear to you about what we value, what we worship, where our allegiance lies. It's not about duty, and Ryle speaks of duty, but it's about worship. Ryle does not want to admit that. He doesn't talk about the key part of this passage because he doesn't want to admit that this is about which kingdom we live in. Who's our king? Do we have two kings? Are we schizophrenics? Stepping back and forth from one kingdom to the other, sometimes under Herod, sometimes under Caesar, at other points under God, and needing to keep the calculus just perfectly in our minds so that we've rendered here and here. Really? That's the amazing thing that Jesus says? This thinking of Bishop Ryle as unlike him as it is, is one of the primary reasons for the great travesty of the American church and our Christian lives. It's a woefully bad understanding of this passage. It, as it were, splits you as a Christian into two camps. You are a citizen of this kingdom here temporally. You are a citizen of this kingdom there spiritually. And as though you can just figure it out, you know? I mean, come on. Isn't it real easy to know what to do here and what to do here? I, oh, now that I'm told there are these two kingdoms, it's easy. I know what to do when the policeman tells me to be quiet outside the abortion clinic. I know exactly what to do. I'm to be in this kingdom or, or this kingdom. You know... The results of this approach are so frequently on display in the weakness and the, the terrible unfruitfulness of those who profess the name of Christ today. I will embarrass my, my children by acknowledging I pay more attention to, to kitty gossip than I should. But I've always been intrigued by this Justin Bieber. And uh, <laughs> partly because he, he grew up in Stratford, Ontario. And it just doesn't seem much like the Stratford that Cheryl and I took our our honeymoon in 25 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> Stratford was a town with some class. It has that, the Stratford Shakespeare Festival. And then Justin Bieber. And, and the other interesting thing is that he's, um, he's from that region of, of Ontario, which is sort of the Bible Belt of Ontario. It's filled with Mennonites, it's, and he's an evangelical. He, he came from an evangelical background. I don't know how many of you knew that. A few of you. And then the, the girl that he hung out with, that, uh, that, that uh, Selena Gomez, who's, I understand, a Disney star from her past. And I'm struck that these, this young woman, when she broke up with Justin Bieber, the reason I started paying attention is I read that she had started going to several really in-depth Bible studies taught by Christians in Hollywood. And you look at these young people and you say, yeah, yeah. Really, you know, 
you need to know how to live in the world and you need to know how to live in the kingdom of God. But they don't have the slightest idea how to do it. And once they're in this part, that part goes. Isn't that true? I mean, don't you always find that once they start living here, this part is gone? And so we see it in their lives, right? It's lip service, but there's nothing more because they've become citizens of the world as well as citizens of the kingdom of God. We're using a, a probably more accurate for our circumstance example, the president of a, of a major financial company who, who started a company with a Christian man, was known as, a, as a, a man of faith, a strong man of faith, ran his company on Christian principles for many years. The company grew, grew and grew, became large, hundreds of employees, lots and lots of money, I suspect hundreds of millions in his wallet alone, in his bank account alone. From, And he was, oh, it was such a great Christian firm to work for. Every Christmas, he'd, he would give to those who were his employees and partners in this firm just wonderful gifts. Every family would get a wonderful gift, $500 gift. One year, it was every person could choose between the top-of-the-line mix master and I can't remember something else, you know? That was just, that wasn't the bonus, that was just at the Christmas party, $500 gift. You know, one year everyone in the family got these $150 sunglasses. And, uh, and it, was, it was a sort of proprietorial kindness, you know. Christianity is a warm blanket. So over the holidays, the company would hire people to come into the, the, the well, you don't want to call it the narthex, but the entryway of the company, and they'd have a table set up. And there they do all the Christmas gift wrapping for the employees of the company. So they didn't have to wrap their, they could bring them to work. And he's just wonderful guy, wonderful guy. And as he was going up and the company was making money, he was rising in his church. Becoming more and more influential in his church. Becoming influential with Christians in the whole community. Uh, and uh, and he, he, seems to have it, he seems to have it nailed, right? He's, he's Mr. Cool Dude in the world making lots of money, and he's rising in the church and having it. But then what happens? I mean, what happens? Yeah, he starts paying attention to another woman. And it is revealed that he doesn't have quite the balance that everyone thought he did. And so what does he do? Well, he leaves his wife, and he leaves his church, and he takes the new woman, He's down the road in another church where they'll accept it. And he's found his balance again, right? He's found his balance. This is who we are. This is evangelicalism in America today. We live in the world, but you can't do it. There is no such balance. The person who's trying to parse and divide their life so that they can achieve a sort of equilibrium between the world and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this earth, and the kingdom of heaven, is going to be a person who is nothing. They're going to be terrified. They're going to be constantly fidgeting back and forth, and they are going to fall. Inevitably, they're going to fall towards the world. Is this really Jesus' command? That we live in two worlds? That we live as citizens of two kingdoms? Rendering the world its due in one and God his due in the other? Leading split, schizophrenic lives? Are we dual citizens? Does Jesus ever pretend that we are to be friends and loyal to the world as well as being friends and loyal to God? 
Jesus says, I will not speak much more with you. For the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Now, the ruler of the world stands behind Caesar, establishes the throne of Caesar, reigns through Caesar. And we know that God reigns through them all, right? He's sovereign over both. But let's understand that over Caesar is the prince of this world, and he has nothing in Jesus. Not a square inch of the fabric of Jesus' life belongs to that king or that kingdom. Jesus says to his disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. No two-kingdom man there. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And then to the Father he prays and he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. We are given out of the world into this kingdom. We are not stepping and straddling and going down and saying, I can keep it together, I can keep it together. We are in this kingdom, one world. Jesus calls us to make peace with the world. He says here that some of us need to make our peace with the world and its kings, and others of us need to make our peace with God. If we're Herodians, we need to pay more respect to God. If we're Pharisees, we need to pay more respect to Caesar. Nonsense, garbage. Did Jesus live like this as a dual citizen under God and under man? paying worldly dues to Caesar, heavenly dues to God. Never! When he stands before Herod and says, and Herod says, are you a king? He won't answer him. Says not a word. Far from being subject to Herod, he won't, he's scum. He's the killer of John. The man who put to death that great light. And Jesus won't even talk to him. That's how much he's living in, in Herod's world. Honestly, there has never been a less worldly man than Jesus. He had nothing of the world in him. Consider the life of this man who never married. He not only never married, all right? Though I have no doubt that he found the romantic attachments of marriage something that he longed for. But he not only never married, he never gave himself over to lust. He never looked down the bodice of a neighbor girl's dress or up her leg as she was at the well. Never, never. Not once. Absolute perfection. No worldliness. He doesn't use money. How can I say this? On one sense, I can. It's an argument from silence. But look here. What does he have to do to find a coin? Uh, he has to say, please, someone got one, you know? On another occasion with Peter, when the matter of the tax paid to the temple came up, and whether they should pay it or not, Jesus says to Peter, who does the king levy taxes on, his son or his subjects? Peter answers, his subjects, not his sons. And then Jesus says, okay, 
Right. But in order not to give offense, I want you, Peter, I want you to go take a fishing line. I want you to go out to the Sea of Galilee. Throw the fishing line in the Sea of Galilee. And when you catch the fish, pull it out and look in its mouth. And you know what you're going to find? They're going to find a coin. Take that coin, pay the temple tax, and it will cover both of us. He doesn't have the money. He doesn't want the money. He says, go catch a fish with a fishing line in there. You'll get the money you need. Birds of the air have nests. Foxes have their lairs. And the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Which means not simply that he doesn't have a place to lay his head. It means he doesn't have the money to hire a room. He has no money. He's supported by women. How was it Jesus and his disciples? Well, we're told that Joanna, wife of Chusa, Herod's butler, Herod's steward, supported him along with a number of other wealthy women. Now I say to you, what true man, what really manly man, and Jesus was a manly man, he's a carpenter. What manly man wants to be supported by older women? Right? How many of us would like to say, we, well, we live on, in life on the, the support of, of older women? Jesus lived that way. Why? Because Jesus was not going to live for money. Who was it that had the treasure chest of the group of disciples? It's, it's telling, isn't it? It was Judas who kept the money, and Judas who stole from the money. Jesus didn't keep the money. And Jesus never said anything about the stealing from the money. Jesus didn't care about money. Not only does he not care about money, nor does he look up the legs of girls. He never takes a trip to the beach, we're told. I mean, we never find him doing the fun things in life. He never goes mountain climbing because he wants to conquer the mountain. When he goes up a mountain, he spends the night in prayer. Nothing like a trip to Cedar Point doesn't go to the Capernaum or the Sea of Galilee so that they can take a fun trip. It's always with a crowd pursuing him, you know? Do you ever see Jesus having a, a, a man, being a man of fun rather than a man of sorrows? When he's, when he's missing and his parents are halfway back to Nazareth on the trip, that they were, the return trip from the trip when he was 13 to the temple, they, they look for him, and, and they find him after a day and a half of looking. He's in an iPod shop. He's in an Apple store looking at Apple products and asking about the newest generation of the iPod, right? Or comparing Windows 8 to System 10 what? You know, no. Nor is he skateboarding. Nor is he hanging out with a few guys and girls on the trip. He's back in the temple, and he's arguing, disputing with the religious leaders. And when they come to him and say, hey, come on, let's go, he says, don't you know I need to be about my father's business? 13 years old. This is the guy who's saying, yeah, live in the world and live in the kingdom of God. Nor does he even need food. How many times in Jesus' life do we find him? There's no food. You know? Is that a worldly thing? Is this a guy who's worldly? A guy who goes places and doesn't have food and says to the disciples, well, provide food for them. What? I mean, $30,000, 300 denarii. And he goes, well, give it to them. And we say, obviously you've lost track of this part of the equation. You know, you're not paying attention to the world. 
you need to get a little more worldly, Jesus, if you're going to be any good. But he says, I have food to eat that you don't know of. My food is to do the will of my Father in heaven. And he lives to do the will of his Father in heaven. If ever there was a life of heaven that was lived on earth, it was Christ. Yes, subject to earth's laws. Yes, subject to earth's rulers. Yes, it knew the pains and temptations of earth. But it didn't live there. It shrugged those off every time and returned to the presence of God. Does this Savior call you to dual allegiance? To be a bifurcated citizen between the world and heaven? To live one way under Caesar while paying him his dues in the world and then by another loyalty and another king spiritually? Really? No. What does he do? He calls you to worship him. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. He says, worship me. And the Herodians and the Pharisees hate him for it. And they want an answer. It's a two-kingdom answer. Okay, split the difference, and he does not give it to them. But you say, but David, he does give it to them. He does. I mean, he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. All right? Let's deal with it. The proof that this idea that we're to live in two worlds is, is wrong is found in the assumption we make that Jesus says that giving this coin to Caesar is doing something good and honoring to Caesar. Right? You have to construe it as he's saying, okay, give Caesar Caesar what he deserves and then give God what he deserves. But I say to you, that's nonsense. It's, It's nonsense. He is not saying, okay, money is a lesser thing, but give it to Caesar, but it's something that he deserves and give it to him. Ironically, Ryle, Bishop Ryle, and those who like him view this passage as dividing the Christian life between these two kingdoms and these two lords. They get there by assuming that giving money to Caesar is, is rendering some form of honor to Caesar, that Jesus is saying, render honor to Caesar. You know? Which is absolutely ludicrous. Remember, okay, let's get back to the, the, the key thing that happens here. Jesus says, give me a coin. Someone have a coin? I want to look at a coin. He, he wants it to do what? Not to pay the tax, right? It's not like the temple tax where he says, go and catch the fish and we're going to use it. What does he want to do with the coin? Well, it's right here, right? He says to them, bring me a denarius to look at it. He wants to look at this coin. So they bring the coin And apparently it's there in his hand or in one of their hands. It's in front of this whole crowd. And he says, look at this. Look at this. Why does Jesus ask for the coin to look at it? And when he receives it and he calls their attention to it, what part does he mention? He says, says, whose image is on here? Whose likeness? And whose inscription? Okay? So we've got two things in view. One is a picture. The other is words, an inscription. He says, whose 
whose likeness is this and whose inscription? But of course, what you need to understand at this point is that what we're told in Scripture is that we are not to make a graven image of anything, right? Nor are we to worship the graven images. And so what Jesus says here in the Greek is actually, whose icon is this? Whose ikonos is this? Is that a positive statement about money? Is he commending this money? When he uses the word that refers specifically and explicitly to idolatry, says, whose icon is this? Well, let's go further. Denarius, from that era, from the reign of the then-ruling emperor, who's Tiberius, has on its obverse side, which is the head of the coin, the head of the ruler. It's a profile shot. It's a shot of the, of the, the, the Caesarine, you know, sort of the nose and all that. And, and that's the head of the coin. <clears throat> On the reverse, which is the other side of the coin, the tail, Caesar is shown seated on a throne. He's wearing a diadem crown, and he's clothed as a high priest. The ins- okay, those are the icons, Right? The headshot, the image of him as a priest on, on his throne, wearing a crown. The, the inscription, the words are these. And I'm not going to do it in the Latin because I'd mangle it. We'll leave that to Josh Congrove, all right? But um, in English, it said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus. Tiberius Caesar King Augustus August one. A, a sort of middling claim to deity, right? Augustus. But then right under that, on the, on the, the back side of the coin, or on the front side, on the head, right under Tiberius Caesar Augustus, which is his own name, there's this name, son, or this inscription, son of what? Anyone know? So it gives his name, then What? Son of the divine Augustus. So we have Caesar the God, son of the God. And on the reverse, underneath the guy on the throne, it says high priest, highest priest, Pontifex Maximus, or Pontif Maxim. So here we have Jesus looking at this coin. It's in front of him. And all the people are gathered around, and he says, whose likeness is this? Whose icon is this? Whose image, whose graven image is this? Whose graven image? I think he's saying it in a positive way. Whose graven image is this? Whose graven image is this? Whose pretty picture is this? Isn't this pretty? No, not at all. Whose image is this? Here Jesus is. He's holding a graven image of a man who claims to be a god. The inscription on the coin proclaims his father a god. His own name proclaims himself the son of a god and divine. And When Jesus says to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, this is no positive statement about this coin or this Caesar, or this kingdom. 
this is amazing. Because what he's saying is this kingdom is garbage. It is manure. It is sin through and through. Throw the sin to the sinners. Let the manure pile have the manure. Understand this. And render to God what belongs to God. This is Jesus Christ, the one of whom Scripture says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is the image of God. He is the son of God. He is the high priest who reconciles to himself all things, whether on heaven and earth, by the peace made by the blood of the cross. So here we have the true image of the invisible God, the Son of God, firstborn over all creation, creator of all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, in whom all the fullness of God dwells, and he holds a coin. And that coin has the image of a man who says, I'm a God! I'm a God! I'm a son of a God! I'm a high priest! And there holding the coin is the one who holds that man's molecules together. In him, he subsists. If Jesus doesn't say the maintaining word, Caesar is ether. And Jesus is going to die for that man's sins. But we're to split our affections. We're to split our tribute. We're to render certain things to this false king, the one who has usurped the throne, and other things to the true king and the true God. Nonsense. We do give to Caesar what God commands us to. That means we obey what we're commanded. We live quiet, peaceable lives in this world. We do not rebel. We respect the authorities that are over us. We pay the taxes. But in the midst of this, let me tell you, we understand that in the midst of what we're doing, that this throne and its occupants are doomed, they're dying, they're dying lies from hell, that their wealth is garbage, that their pretenses to power fly in the face of the power of God, and that Jesus is preeminent. We give the things that Caesar wants and demands, the money, filthy money, filthy lucre, we give the respect that God tells us to. But we never pay tribute to Caesar. We are never friends with Caesar or his kingdom. Why? Because scripture tells us very clearly, you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can be a friend of the world 
And you can be a friend of God, but you can't be both. And we are never, ever, as Christians, to lose sight of the fact that we live in this kingdom. And that we have one king, and that he has nothing in him that is of the world. Nothing. May I close with four challenges. One, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and no more. This is obedience. This is taxes. This is submission. This is even respect. But no love. No love. No worship. None at all. Treat this world with all the carefulness that you would if you were English and you found an old bomb from the Blitz in your garden. Treat this world like that unexploded bomb in your garden. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Second, do not think that if you're of the kingdom of God that you're also a citizen of Caesar's kingdom. And don't think that you're a citizen of Caesar's kingdom. Yes, you are a citizen of the United States. Yes, you owe certain things, taxes and these other things. But don't sing songs of praise to Caesar. Do not let the words of praise and the, the, the pledges of Caesar be coming from your mouth. And avoid those pledges and those words because you avoid the contagion of this thing. And you start compromising at the level of words and songs. And pretty soon, you're going to be with Selena Gomez and Justin Bieber. You're going to be right there. And when I say this, let me add that the songs of allegiance to the world aren't just national songs of patriotism. They're also the songs of Justin Bieber. Understand? If you listen to Justin Bieber, you are giving your loyalty to the world. There's no way around it. Especially if you're young. Third, I, those of you who are parents unhesitatingly and unashamedly call your children out of the world. Create your home to be part of this kingdom rather than this kingdom. My son's high school wrestling coach talked to me the other day, and he said, he was talking about the scourge of pornography among the young in our churches, and it's no doubt here as it is in our church. He said to me, David, he said, I want the young of this church to be like your son Nathan. He said, I said, what do you mean? He said when he was a senior, kids on the, on the wrestling team would tell really lewd jokes and say really bad things. And he said, and I'd look at Nathan, I'd say, Nathan, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them, have nothing to do with them. And Nathan came up to him afterwards and said, Coach, said, you know, the truth is I really don't understand what they're saying. Well, that's what we want. I mean, really, we want homes that are so pure that we're not fighting masturbation to pornography with our kids, but where our kids grow up and they don't even know what masturbation is. 
Understand? Finally, and most tellingly, Jesus says, use the, the wealth of unrighteousness to gain for yourself friends in heaven. God has given you these coins. And what does he say to do with them? You know, these coins that have these idols on them. He says, throw them this way. Throw them. Throw them. Throw them away. Don't hoard them up. Don't try and take them. Into, throw them away so that you've got friends in heaven. Use it to gain friends. Be as wise as that unjust steward, you know? Do what he did. Throw it this way so that you gain over here. Many of us have a goal of, of dying well endowed. But wouldn't it be better to have made it our goal to die penniless? Isn't that really what Jesus calls us to do? To believe in his kingdom so much that we'll have nothing to do with this kingdom and its values. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this congregation and the joy of being in their midst. Thank you for the dear friends who are here from Africa. Bless them as they return. Be with Taylor and with Reza. Be with those who are going to be married. Thank you for the joy of hearing of Dwayne's marriage. Father, may you keep the world at bay from this church and from these lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.